Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, Sorry to Bother You reprises Black Klansman's white voice. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Thank this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regalview. Creed 2 sees the story invaded by memories of the past. Don't do this. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and you died right here in my hands. And Rupert Everett talks about the challenge of writing Oscar Wilde. You know, he has tremendous flaws, and he makes incredible mistakes. And it's quite contradictory. And I think that is what makes him not easier to write, but it gives you lots more to write. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. This year saw some divergence from the usual cosy relationship between film reviewers and the public. There's generally an unspoken deal. Certainly in the tabloids and popular media, a five-star review means a hit film and vice versa. Except this year saw a number of films with decidedly average notices doing decidedly better than average at the box office. Don't listen to them. They don't understand yet. But they will. So tell me, do you want to go? Where it's covered in all the lights. The musical, based very loosely on the life of the greatest showman, entrepreneur P.T. Barnum, was a good example. The critics sneered, the public didn't care. And the same for ABBA jukebox musical Mamma Mia 2, various Fifty Shades of Grey, and the underwhelming horror comic book hero mashup Venom. Critics, what do they know? What the hell are you? We are Venom. <gasps> Meanwhile, critics' favourites like Hereditary, Suspiria and The Old Man and the Gun have struggled to make any sort of impact. It wasn't always so, of course. We think of artists popular with both the critics and the public. Shakespeare, Hitchcock, Beethoven and this week, poet, playwright and wit Oscar Wilde. Well, later in the show, I'll talk with Rupert Everett about his new film about Wilde's final years, The Happy Prince. Not wearing your silk stockings today, Oscar. You go too far, sir. No, you go too far, madam. I am a ruined man. But first, two films that mark the split between the street and the elite, in this case both starring and directed by African-Americans. In a moment, the next chapter of the Adonis Creed Rocky Balboa story. But first, a surreal attack on the capitalist system called Sorry to Bother You. Hey, Cash, how much longer I got to wait for my money? God made this land for all of us. Greedy people like you want to hog it to yourself and your family. And... Me and my family? Yeah. Cash, I'm your f***ing uncle. Writer-director of Sorry to Bother You is hip-hop artist-turned-angry filmmaker Boots Riley, and I suspect the movie might work better at a fringe theatre than at a cinema. This is no criticism of its filmic qualities, more on the expectations of the audience. 
Man, I'm just out here surviving. And what I'm doing right now won't even matter. Baby, baby, it will always matter. Cassius Green, cash to his friends, is broke, currently living in a garage with his girlfriend, performance artist Detroit. So he applies for a job with a telemarketing firm. I get it, Boots Riley. There's no example of capitalism at its most crass and obvious than a telemarketing firm. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Mr. Davison, cash is green here. Sorry to bust. And the intrusiveness of these calls is underlined by having Cash literally crash into people's homes to make his pitch. Well, the first 20 minutes or so of Sorry to Bother You is funny and makes you wish that the film remain in the telemarketing area. But director Boots Riley has more fish to fry. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. When old hand Danny Glover advises Cash to use his white voice, Cash's career takes a turn for the profitable. It seems all it takes to sell people's stuff is to be white and nerdy. It's a surreal comedy. It doesn't have to be plausible. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. You're doing so good with the voice thing. Holla, 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 holla. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Going upstairs, power collar. They even have their own elevator. But it also marks the moment that the film takes a left turn from popular entertainment to self-conscious artiness. And these days, I'm afraid, surreal satire does as badly at the box office as a modern western. I got promoted. I'm a power caller. What do they sell? They're not selling the we sell it. No, well, there's no amount of money that make me do that. Here's the starting salary. Well, man, I'm going to have to get me some new suits. Whatever I wear, no, I'm here to be The critics have generally been enthusiastic about Sorry to Bother You, particularly about stars Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson as Cash in Detroit. But it's too pleased with itself and it forgot to invite the audience in. Unlike another film also featuring Tessa Thompson, the popular Creed Two. We don't do what we love. wouldn't exist. It's time, kid. Now, it's easy to poo-poo Sylvester Stallone's Rocky Balboa, the lunk-headed boxer who triumphs against all odds because his heart's in the right place. But star, writer and producer Stallone may play a dumb character, but he's far from stupid. And one of the smartest things he did with the franchise was to turn the spotlight on the son of his old friend and rival, Apollo Creed. It's not just us anymore, Dave. I want to rewrite history. If you want to fight this man, that's your business. But don't pretend this is about your father. The first Creed film saw Adonis Creed go on to boxing stardom because he had Rocky in his corner. The second film, Creed II, you want me to draw you a diagram, sees Adonis and Rocky on top of the world until they get a reminder of the tragic events of, I think, Rocky IV. Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago, who infamously killed Apollo Creed, appeared today to issue a challenge to Adonis Creed. 
That was the film where Man Mountain Ivan Drago, played by Dolph Lundgren, killed Apollo Creed in the ring, only to be later taken out by Rocky himself, while James Brown thundered Living in America in the background. Well, Ivan's back, or rather his son Victor is back with Ivan in his corner. And they've both got a grudge against anyone called Creed or Balboa. It's like nothing really matters to him right now. Including me. You gotta think real hard about this. You got people that need you now. I'm taking the fight. Adonis Creed feels honour bound to avenge his father, despite the advice of his mum, his wife Bianca, Tessa Thompson again, and of course Rocky. Don't do this. I ain't got a choice. That's the same thing your father said, and you died right here in my hands. And Creed 2 is a film that sets out to give the audience exactly what it wants. And what it wants isn't a complex three-act drama exploring the rights and wrongs of the fight game and the state of Russian and American politics in 2018. It wants a one-two boxing story. In the ring, you got rules. Outside, you got nothing. Life hits you with all these cheap shots. Now, there are only two boxing stories. There's the artistically satisfying one where our hero wins and then loses. And there's the far more popular one where he loses and then he wins. And Sly Stallone's made a career out of the second version. That kid was raised in hate. It's dangerous. He broke things in me that ain't never been fixed. It ain't worth it. But the popular route still leaves room for the unexpected. In many ways, Creed 2 is an underdog story, and the underdog isn't Adonis Creed. When Ivan Drago lost his fight to Rocky, his country turned on him, his wife deserted him, and he brought up his son Victor to blame Rocky for everything. Hard not to feel sorry for the Dragos. People like me live in the past. you got people that need you now. You got everything to lose. This guy's got nothing to lose. Meanwhile, like many sporting champions, Creed himself is getting a swelled head and needs to hear some home truths from his near and dear, mostly about family and heart and doing things for the right reason, yada, yada, yada. This won't be the end of me. Or you. It can't be, because we're a team. And most important, what the public demands from a film like Creed II is a lengthy training montage culminating in the famous Rocky theme tune and then a climactic fight where everything gets sorted. Do they get it? Are you kidding? Like I say, Sylvester Stallone isn't stupid and neither is Creed II. Round after round, you learn more about yourself. And when I stepped in that ring... It wasn't all about me. There have been several films about the life of gay Irish playwright and celebrity Oscar Wilde, notably the two starring Peter Finch and Robert Morley back in 1960, and a more recent one starring Stephen Fry. But the latest concentrates on his last few months and may very well be the best one yet. 
Your appreciation has been most intelligent. Which persuades me that you think almost as highly of the play as I do myself. The Happy Prince is not only the name of one of the greatest and saddest fairy tales ever written, it's also a film about the rarely told last act of its author, Oscar Wilde. It stars Rupert Everett, who's very good, unsurprisingly, slightly more surprising as he wrote and directed it as well. As far as I can tell, it's the first film he's directed, though you wouldn't know it. It looks brilliant. It's like a French Impressionist painting. So, Rupert, congratulations on the film. And is this, in fact, the first film you've directed, or have you done other stuff as well? It's the first film I've directed, Simon, and um, I'm hoping uh, to keep going and direct my second uh, next year. That's my dream. Great performances all the way through, and you clearly called in some favours because you've got a fantastic cast, and often in small roles. Yes, I coerced everybody I knew uh, into being in the movie, and uh, I must say, I think uh, the, the performances, and, even, and as you say, even the small roles are played by people who are incredibly overqualified. And I think that's one of the things that's striking about the film. Uh, the small roles uh, are played so beautifully. Without Colin Firth and Emily Watson and Tom Wilkinson, the movie would not have happened because the money was all dependent on them showing up. So it was amazing uh, act of friendships on their behalf to, to come and help me do it. Your own performance as Oscar Wilde is fantastic. I mean, it's such a, a range of things that you cover, but I wondered how difficult it was directing yourself since this was your first directing gig. Well, actually, Simon, I really enjoyed working with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, in the edits, you can make your own performance so much better. And because I knew exactly what I was attempting to do as an actor, as a director, I could really enhance it sometimes. And um, I, I loved directing the film and I loved working with the other actors. Of course, none of them really needed any direction at all. They knew exactly what they were doing. And so that was very lucky for me. And um, I, I must say, I, I really enjoyed directing it. And um, what, the thing that I did wrong as an actor quite often, because I was always in such a hurry to get on to the next scene because we had such a difficult schedule, I'd sometimes move too fast and go too fast. And I think pace, in a way, for an actor is the most important ingredient for him to, to connect with the audience. Uh, if it's too fast, people turn off. If it's too slow, people get bored. I think my pace was sometimes too fast because I was screeching into a room just to try and get the scene over. So I, I managed to unweave some of that in the edit and put my pace back to the right pace. And I really improved my own performance. So I did enjoy working with myself as a director, I must say. <laughs> We've seen the story of Oscar Wilde's downfall before, but th most of these treatments usually stop at the gates of Reading Jail, don't they? They, you know, That's look, right. he was That's up right. there and he was down there, the end, you know. But what inspired you to try and tell the story of his last act, if you like? Well, first of all, I think uh, the other three films cop out a little bit for one reason or another, and they just can't face up to really what was done to Oscar Wilde by society. And for me, I suppose, uh, you know, having negotiated a career all these years in a, uh, as a gay man in a, in a largely boys' clubbish uh, business like show business, this side of the story, the, the passion of Oscar Wilde, uh, in a way, the, the destruction of Oscar Wilde at the hands of society, uh, is the story that I wanted to tell. Because, funnily enough, this is still the story of the homosexual man lesbian and transgender around the world if we take the world the whole globe in three quarters of it it's still a life and death uh, challenge being your, your sexuality and even in our in our world where 
where we've made such vast strides in the last 117 years, we're still a, a minority and, and things change all the time. So I feel that this story is really a story for now. And we still have this amazing obsession about sexuality in the world. We've touched a little on your directing of this, Rupert, but in fact the writing is a very critical part of this film too. It must have been very difficult to get the structure right. Well, one of the things I knew right at the beginning is because of the other three films, uh, I, the territory of his fame and his uh, you know, rise to fame and being the life and soul of the Café Royal and being uh, in the theatre, I, I, I knew I didn't want to deal with very much of that. What I was really interested in was dying and his deathbed, really, and the room, because that's a famous room with the wallpaper and... And the great joke about the wallpaper. And the great joke about the wallpaper. And, and the idea of what happens to a man when he starts dying, when his brain starts collapsing, almost like a cliff edge crumbling off, hmm. and the memories that are locked inside it coming out. The, the way I thought of writing the script, because I didn't want to write a conventional biopic that goes from A to Z of a famous person's life. I wanted it to have a, a, a mysterious and magical quality. And, and so it's really a dream, almost, that a man has about the rest of his life. And that's what he says at the beginning of the film. He looks at the camera and says, it's a dream. And then he takes the camera on this journey through his last days in which his brain takes one last look at the past, really. It's interesting who stuck by him because he had um, very loyal friends and one poisonous friend that he should have got rid of. Yes, he had three loyal friends. I mean, what, what's difficult for people to understand now is it was just death to someone to be seen with him. You need to be very brave to consort with Oscar Wilde. Uh, you know, he was literally the devil to the English people. So to, to consort openly with him, uh, most, most of his friends fell by the wayside. And when he lived in Paris, he would see them crossing the road to avoid him. But three friends stood by him, Robbie, Reggie, and in a way, actually, Bosie stood by him too. Sure. Poisonous. But he didn't really... Uh, he, 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 he destroyed him, but he never turned his back on him completely. I think that you covered it very nicely when it was patently obvious there was Mr. Wright. Robbie was just such a lovely person and was the right, <laughs> the right person for him, but he just didn't fancy him. Whereas Bosie was... He didn't see it. He didn't see it until, the, until it was almost too late. But I think by the end he did see that Robbie was his man in a way. It's very hard to sort of cast your mind back to that era, actually, Rupert, because we say that at the time it was as if nobody had ever heard of homosexuality, nobody had ever heard of... I can't believe that it was such a big shock to people, but it clearly was. No, wait a minute, Simon. <laughs> uh, no, the thing was, what was interesting, they wouldn't have been gay, They would, have, and also no one would have really known about it except for the people they were doing it with. For example, women would never, ever, ever have imagined, because they never talked with men about sex anyway... They would never have imagined that men could have sex with each other. They hardly knew that men had sex with women, really. <laughs> so all that did happen, of course, tons of things happened, was utterly secret. So it didn't have a name. It didn't have um, an image in society until, really, the Oscar Wilde scandal. No one really knew what it was. And so when you saw Oscar Wilde walking down the street in Paris, and remember, he was famous, even without photographs and television. People knew who, that, that it was him. Sure. They could point at him and say, that is this new thing, a homosexual man. And the name is to know. And once that name had come out, then the road to gay liberation really could get going. 
I was wondering if he was difficult to write because he was so contradictory. He seemed to be so self-destructive in some ways, but also a Christian and obsessed in a way with Queen Victoria, according to your film. (laughs) He loved Queen Victoria. Well, I think that gives the writer lots more um, arrows to his quiver, really. It's lucky that he's such a big character because he's not a conventional hero. You know, he has tremendous flaws and he makes incredible mistakes. And he's quite contradictory. Uh, he's fairly cruel to his wife, at least. And I think that is what makes him not easier to write, but it gives you lots more to write. I wondered whether Bozzi was an easy person to get under the skin of. There's a, a very harsh scene where Bozzi dismisses Oscar Wilde's talent. He dismisses everything he's ever written in one poisonous sentence and I thought (laughs) I've never seen anybody do that before I thought it was a brilliant line but I just wondered was he difficult to get under the skin of I think he part of him no in a way I I, I felt I could get a good grip on him there he was he was an aristocratic young man he befriended this big star who took him out for dinner and gave him clothes and spent you know really tons of money on him Uh, but deep inside you know Oscar Wilde to Bosey, who is an English aristocrat, which is like being, you know, a saint, really. Uh, Oscar Wilde was an Irishman, and to the English at that point, at the zenith of empire, the Irish were really at the bottom of the pile. And so I think, you know, Bosey certainly looked down on Oscar inside himself. And obviously, like all young people, he thought he was the most brilliant person on the planet, and uh, everyone else was a subsidiary. So uh, I think he probably did feel that about Wilde in a way. I have to ask about the fairy story, The Happy Prince. When did he write Mm. that? Did he write that before he went to jail or did he write that afterwards? Uh, Way before. He wrote it in 1883, really before even he became seriously famous as as a playwright. He wrote the fairy stories. They're astonishing. Yes, they're very dark as well. And, uh, and uh, it's quite extraordinary that we as children heard them because they're quite a handful. And they're quite scary in a way because they're all about love and suffering and the price paid for love, all these things. Um, one particular one, The Nightingale and the Rose, is the most extraordinarily painful. Of course, they're all dripping with Christianity and, uh, and, and, and Christ consciousness as well. The weird thing about Oscar Wilde is that even at his lowest, he seemed to have a gift for being loved. You, he, he spends most of the time in this film in France, doesn't he? Um, and, That's right. And everyone seems to like him, despite the fact that he treats them badly. He doesn't pay any of his bills. and You know, <laughs> he's, he's a yes, sort of a nightmare. He's a, yes, he's like, a, he's like a little Irish tinker. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, what's amazing about him in exile is that he never becomes a victim. He carves his own constitution. On the, now it's on the street corner and not in the West End. And he replaces the royalty and the movie stars with uh, low-life rent boys and petty criminals. And he holds forth uh, in bars and on tables and performs. He's a great performer, Wilde. He can't live without performing. And uh, he finds a new world to perform to and new friends. And he's loved. Uh, I think when he comes around the corner in Paris in 1900, yes, of course, it's a tragedy, his life. But there's a whole new group of people who are absolutely thrilled that he's arrived and talk about him and think about him and care about him. So uh, I think his life, even in defeat, is wonderfully inspiring. 
I think also that the look of the film, I mean, you look at some of these shots, particularly when he's sitting outside a bar and you think, well, that's Manet, isn't it? You, you know, it's very French impressionistic. You, you must have had a very good relationship with your cameraman. I had an amazing cameraman and um, he really was the person who pulled the whole project off for me. He and my designer uh, were just did the most amazing job. But the cameraman and I were really on the same page and he was a remarkable character. I wondered also where Oscar Wilde fits in the journey towards gay liberation. I mean, as you said, once he named it, it suddenly became part of the conversation, if you like. The gay liberation movement really started in 1900 with Oscar Wilde's death. Uh, That's when the whole thing took off. And we're still walking in that, uh, in that, on that path now. So everyone in the LGBTQ community, he really is their patron saint or, or their Christ figure. I wonder what he'd think of uh, the, the LGBTQ movement now. I mean, I, I just can't imagine anybody less likely to want to be woke. What's woke? Woke is this sort of thing where pe- earnest and humorless political correctness, I guess, is what it is. It's, it's a sort is of a that, thing... Is that like... A, no, no, he would hate being woke, I think. Um, <laughs> but I think he'd be fascinated by something. Yeah. He'd be fascinated by the notion of marriage, uh, for example... But the thing is, you can't really take a historical character. He's so much of his time, that last moment before Freud, before the 20th century, before modernism, before war, before suffrage. He's, one, he's a comma in that whole phrase of, of major change, but he really fits in there and nowhere else, I think. After this experience, are you planning to make another film soon, Rupert? I mean, you've you clearly got the bit between your teeth. It's, it's a fantastic piece of work. Well, thank you very much. I would love to make another film, but, you know, you, it's always famous. To, to, the making your second film is harder than making your first film. So I don't know whether I'll pull it off. Um, I'm quite old now, but, yes, I love, I'd love to make another film. Do you have sort of a, an acting job sort of hovering in the wings at the moment or are you sort of doing this um, first? I've got a couple of, um, couple of things I might be doing uh, in the wings and um, I've written another script that I'm trying to get moving. I'm just pushing and pushing. You have to keep working in this business. If you stop and rest for a second, you drown like an old shark. <laughs> <laughs> That's Rupert Everett, star, writer and director of The Happy Prince, a remarkable film about the last days of Oscar Wilde and it comes out on Boxing Day. Well, that brings this show to a close. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.